Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I spend a good deal of time speaking on college campuses and hearing how new generations want to balance the question they've grown up hearing, what do they want to do when they grow up, with the question of who and how they will be in the world. At Stanford University this year, I was part of a searching conversation about this. I found faculty as well as students eager to join me. How we educate for success is strangely at odds with what we're learning on our scientific and medical frontiers about everything from the power of rest to the interactivity between our minds and bodies and emotions to our need for others. From where I sit, our view of success is also at odds with what we know of wisdom, of social and moral capacities like friendship and courage, dignity and hospitality that make for a deeply satisfying life. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Two beloved Stanford educators, Abraham Verghese and Denise Pope, joined me for a conversational variation on the Mimi and Peter E. Haas Distinguished Visitor Lecture with a live audience of students, faculty, and local community members. I am so happy to be joined by Denise Pope and Abraham Verghese. Denise is a senior lecturer in the Graduate School of Education here. She is a researcher steeped in the topic of success and its meaning in the lives of the young among us. You can summarize some of her perspective, I think, by noting the title of her project that emerged from her research, Challenge Success, and that challenge is a confrontational verb, (laughs) and the title of her book, Doing School how we are creating a generation of stressed out, materialistic, and miseducated students. Um, She also helped start the Resilience Project here at Stanford. Abraham Verghese is an esteemed professor of medicine and physician. He founded and directs the Presence Project at Stanford. And he's also, just in case you haven't heard, a best-selling globally renowned writer of fiction and nonfiction. Of course, there is his wonderful novel, Cutting for Stone, but also two beautiful autobiographical works, The Tennis Partner and My Own Country. And I would say that among other things, these books touch deeply on the art and challenge of being alive and on the complexity and costs of success. So I want to just begin with you, Denise, just asking about your earliest memory of what success looks like, perhaps who embodied that for you, and so what that meant to you. And also I'm curious about if even then, what questions it raised in you. Um, My grandparents were immigrants, and came, my grandfather came to America from Poland and had nothing. He was, I think, nine when he moved here, and he, with his parents, my great-grandparents, made something of themselves. And I think for what was always put through our heads, everyone in my family, is success is 
you know, coming with nothing and finding community and being the head of a family and using education. He, he actually went to college for a year or two before having to drop out. So it, it was ingrained in me that very early sense of success was tied up with sort of education and being able to make it. But that's because the opposite was poverty and, and you know, not being educated. So that that's probably my first memory is that my, my grandfather was definitely the um, patriarch of the family and a vision of, of success. Mm-hmm. Abraham, you were, your parents were Indian, but you grew up mostly in Ethiopia. Is that right? That's right. Yes, yeah. my parents were school teachers in Ethiopia. Okay. What did success look like to you? How did you think about it when you were growing up? It was actually fairly straightforward for for me because uh, middle-class Indian parents, I always think, are very much like uh, Jewish parents in that you can be a doctor or a lawyer or a failure. These are your options. (laughs) One more. You can be an engineer, doctor, lawyer, engineer, or failure. And, you know, my parents had come to Ethiopia precisely because there were not opportunities for them after all the hardship of pursuing an education. And, uh, you know, they made this grand voyage across to another continent. And so they were driven by that measure of success for good reasons, I think. Mm -hmm. And I certainly took that to heart and, you know, became a physician in part because of that and because I had no head for math. So engineering was out of the question. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also because I, I valued that sense of a calling, a profession. So, you know, I always worry about when any conversation kind of veers into the kids these days mode. And so, but that's not what we're doing here. We are talking about how this matter of success and what it means has shifted in our lifetimes. Those of us who've been around for a little while perceive that. And Denise, you have actually studied that. You have put research to that. You know, you started to see, when you started to look at this, that there's a lot of hyperactive attention to success in terms of academic achievement, study habits, classroom discipline, peer culture, dropout rates would be the opposite. And as you said, just about no serious attention to classroom experiences and the character of their intellectual engagement. Yeah. So I always start my talks out with how do you define success? And if I say it to students in a student assembly, without fail, Usually, the top couple of answers are money, grades, test scores, where you go to college, something like that. And that's been consistent now for for 15 years. Um, And when I ask the same question to the parents, and usually it is the parents of those kids who are coming at the same school that night, it's never that. Now, they could be lying, right? They don't want to say money. But, but usually they I don't they want s- my kid to make a lot of money. Well, right. I mean, no one's <laughs> right. going to stand up and say that loud. But they say happiness, well-being, give yeah. back to society, love and be loved. I mean, really different from yeah. what we're hearing from the kids. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I would presume, and I think you would too, that they mean that. But it, what it kind of points out to me is that we know how to teach these other things, and we invest in them. Right. It's kind of what I, what I perceive, that we have lost our sophistication about investing in those things, even if we believe them. And I think it's in the everyday little messages that schools send and that parents send. When you, when you walk into schools, you see awards. You see, one of the first things when you walk into a school is usually the trophy case. Um, sometimes you see pictures of kids with 4.0s on the wall. We publish honor students in the newspaper. Yeah. The first thing a 
a parent says when the kid walks in the door is how'd you do on the history test, right? Mm -hmm. You're sending those messages that external, extrinsic grades, test scores, that's what matters more. You don't, you know, they're posting their, their report cards on the fridge. They're not posting, you know, their public service activities on the fridge. They're not raving to grandma about that when they talk about SAT scores. So it's happening. Right. We're sending the messages to these kids to produce that result. You know, Abraham, I want to, something that you've written about and flows into the Presence Project, this art of living that is presence, that you, that you define as, I think you've said, the most important quality in being human. You know, you tell this story about the idea of presence had its origins for you in a parking lot here at Stanford, and you went into a museum, but you also, even in that moment, were grappling with the fact that, thinking actively about the fact that this is not related to work and yet you made this decision to kind of give into it, and it informed, I feel, your sense of success ever after. Sure. I mean, I think that um, in medical school you see the same qualities that Denise was speaking about exaggerated because it's the really driven folks who you know, go to pre-med and make it through and get to medical school. And, you know, there's a, there's a moment, and typically it's after they finish their initial training and they're in practice for a couple of years, when they suddenly realize that there's much more to this than, than just a body of knowledge and earning their money and paying off their student loans. And they're looking for meaning. And the meaning comes in those human interactions. And mm. we picked that word presence because it was the one thing that uh, doctors told us that they were most unhappy about, that they were not allowed to be present. The machine, the grind of medicine was just forcing them to not have the human interactions as much as they wanted to. And conversely, patients also talked about how the doctor was simply not present. Or there was an intruder in the room. There was the computer. There was the third uninvited guest who kept distracting the doctor's attention. So mm. I think it's a very human quality. And trying to find ways to bring people who have been conditioned with these external validators of success, such as you know, SAT scores and MCAT scores and, you know, then allow them to, allow myself to go from the parking lot into an art gallery. It takes some deconditioning, if you will, for that to start happening. It's not automatic. I want to talk about also a cost of this that, um, Abraham, you, you quote Mark Rothko in this beautiful essay you wrote about presence. I can't remember if this is a quote or if you were paraphrasing, but that art, including the art of living, is an adventure into the unknown world which can be explored only by those willing to take the risks. I think one of the most ironic costs of this kind of manic drive to success that we've created is that there's a fearfulness that comes with it. A fear of taking the wrong step, of asking the wrong question, of sounding stupid. In the Resilience Project, you know, when you are describing what resilience is, and I, I have to assume you spelled this out because the students you're dealing with need this spelled out. On a small scale, resilience is about raising your hand in class and risk sounding stupid. Yeah, because the person who is your sole judge is standing in front of you. And if you say something dumb, it could cost you your grade, it could cost you your letter of recommendation. And then when you think about the ed school here at Stanford, the whole process of learning is asking questions and making mistakes and taking risks. That's actually the process of learning. And then reflecting on those 
to learn the lesson. So it's also the process of growing up. Yeah, absolutely. It's also like failure, what goes wrong, what you get through that you didn't know how you would get through. This is this is the breeding ground of becoming wise and mature and Absolutely. Yeah. And if you think of what we what I always say to parents is if you think of little kids learning how to walk, mm-hmm. they fall down a lot. That is the process of learning how to walk. And you don't go and move their little feet for them. Yeah. And yet when they get You old, want to. You want to. <laughs> and you but yeah. you say, Oops a daisy, right? Yeah. You kinda let's get back up. And as they get older, the parents are also very afraid. Yeah. It's very um, scary to let your kid make a mistake or fail or not turn in their homework or get a bad grade or make a, a social mistake or whatever. And I think they talk about this thing like the door. We don't want the door to close. We want to keep all doors open as if there's, as if there's one, you know, what you do in eighth grade is going to affect you for the rest of your life. It's right. not. Right. But there's this every step of the way, this fear that you're going to be closing doors. It's very yeah. pervasive. And I think also, and you were pointing at this, there's a truth we don't name that we really need to start naming, which is, um, you know, you take the right path, you still have a human life. I mean, there's a story in your book about the kids you met. You know, there was Roberto saying to you, I just wish I could get a 4.0. I just want to feel the excitement of getting it. I want to feel it. A 4.0. The thing is, he could get it, and that feeling will last for about 10 minutes. And then he still has all the human condition he had before, and other things will go wrong. And we're not being honest about that. And parents want the recipe for getting the Roberto to be successful. And the problem is there's not a recipe, which is really hard to hear as a parent, right? And... What's even harder is the things that you really care about, you can't measure and you won't know. It's longitudinal data, right? You're not going to know how this all works out until it's working itself out and they get older and all that. So, mm-hmm. so it's really hard on the parents, right? Here's a, just a little example to show this. You can now check your child's grades at every moment. Yeah at every time of the day. There's, you know, technology has allowed this to happen. And there are parents who literally say, I can't stop myself. I go on multiple times a day. I don't even, I know it doesn't even change that much. And the kids go on and everybody becomes more and more obsessed with check, 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 checking. And the stuff that you really care about, are they kind people? Are they healthy? Are they, do they love learning? Has that spark hit them? Do they ask great questions? Do they know what it's like to be a but friend? But that's not rewarded. Yeah. No. Yeah. Like, it's not tested. You talked about in 10th grade how you fell in love with Walt Whitman. I think that's the first line of your book. And I kind of think part of what you are feeling and in pain about is that uh, enough people aren't falling in love with Walt Whitman or wh- whoever their Walt Whitman would be. It's so true. Mm-hmm. And learning for learning's sake, forget it. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you teach an ungraded class, they don't do the work. You know, it's just not set up. The system is not set up for falling in love with Walt Whitman. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, rethinking success. I'm at Stanford University with researcher Denise Pope and physician and novelist Abraham Verghese.
we've been kind of um, diagnosing what's wrong, which we're really good at in journalism and the academy. So let's talk a little bit about what we're, well, kind of, I don't want to even say the positive side of things. It, even to recast it a little bit, I mean, I met um, somebody from Apple the other day, Joel Podolny, who's head of the Apple University, which is an internal thing, but in the context of saying something else, he said, success is a terrible context for learning, which, was, which I thought was just such a, so brilliantly stated, and it just, it's, it's a truth. And yet that truth isn't built into our places. But I do feel like you both are working in your spheres on how to shift this and that, that it's not all rocket science. So what are, I mean, what are we learning? What are you learning? And I guess what educators can do, what parents can do, and just what we can do for each other as fellow humans. What are you, how are you thinking about this? Yeah, I think the easiest thing to recognize very soon in your medical career is that all the wonderful science, including the science being done here, doesn't necessarily impact the great burden of disease in our country, which is usually chronic disease. It's an aging population, it's chronic disease. And for that, you really need a different kind of practice of medicine. My, my own belief is that you really need one human being mm. who is trained to express care along with the scientific knowledge and along with the medical care. And, you know, trying to teach that has been extraordinarily hard for a long time. But the interesting thing that's happening right now is the recognition that the distinction between the touchy-feely and the science is completely vanishing. That's uh, really interesting. Some yeah. wonderful work being done here at Stanford by Alia Crum and her group and many others across the world are showing us that the placebo effect, for example, is much more complicated than we thought. Um, when I give you a pain pill after your surgery, if it's a placebo, and if you get relief, and about 20% to 30% of people will, we can actually measure a neurobiological change in your brain, you know, these endorphins being secreted. And then if I go in with a morphine antagonist, the pain will come roaring back. So we're learning that placebo is not about conning people. It's really about trying to trigger a certain kind of change. And we're also learning how much we don't know, how much we simply don't understand in this black box. Yeah. There's definitely a corollary in education around relationships because we know that when you feel that there's someone who has your back, when there's an adult you can go to if you have a problem, if your teacher truly cares about you, knows your name, knows who you are, knows how you learn, kids are more engaged. They do better. And that, that's where we say it isn't rocket science. I mean, we know how to get kids to learn. We know that if you feel safe and you feel like you belong and you're excited and engaged, you're more likely going to learn than if you're not. And it's just the whole system is getting in the way of those relationships and that learning being able to happen. And so we work you know, very concretely with schools. Can you change your bell schedule so that not everyone's running around eight times a day? Can you have a later start so that kids can get more sleep because they need mm -hmm. it? Can you mm -hmm. build time in for teachers and students to work together and meet and talk and have advisory? We know how to do this. It's just really hard to break what, you know, you, everybody in their life has been through 14, 12, 16 years of school that all look the same. And we're talking about something that's pretty different and scary, particularly mm -hmm. for those schools that have those high-achieving kids. Because if it ain't broke, and we're saying, no, 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 it, it's broke. 
It's real. It looks different. You might be getting good grades and getting them to college. It's like we have to develop those metrics. I mean, I mean, in medicine there is this new, and in psychology, right? There's there's a. It's just crazy that we had to come to this. That that we're now developing measures metrics for what health looks like, rather than pathology. So it's almost like we have to develop those metrics for emerging people and it's in schools and elsewhere. Yeah. What does health look like? I'd like to say that in medicine, uh, the solutions to what ails us are pretty straightforward, and we all know what they are. Patients are very clear on what they want from us. We're very clear on how we'd like to see it, but I think we're recognizing that all of us have to leave our disciplines and be more engaged in societal change as a whole, because the problem isn't residing in medicine. The problem, if we don't get engaged beyond medicine, then we will suffer the consequences. And certainly in medicine, that's true. I ask my medical students, I say, look around. You know, do you, our biggest need in this country is care for the elderly. The biggest need is yeah. for chronic disease. Yeah. Instead, you look around, you see freestanding short-stay surgery centers, freestanding cardiology centers, freestanding cancer centers. Have you ever seen a freestanding geriatric center with a piano that plays in the lobby and a valet parking? That's our need, and it's mm-hmm. all driven by reimbursement and how it's set up, and we can't reform medicine unless we're willing to tackle those kinds of things. And to me, the most exciting thing in medicine is the phenomenon of my medical students getting their MDs and MBAs, and I thought, well, what for? Why do you need an MBA? Uh, I thought maybe they want to go make a lot of money. Every one of them went into primary care. Uh, they're now in the Brigham system, a few of them. They did that because they want to change medicine. They want to reform mm. this thing. Mm. And they know they needed knowledge of finance. And one of them I just learned has dropped out because he's running for office in Colorado. <laughs> and that is the kind of change I think our generation needs to encourage. a short break, more with Abraham Verghese and Denise Pope. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every show we do on the On Being podcast feed, wherever you find your podcasts. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Congratulations to the 2019 Templeton Prize winner, Brazilian physicist Marcelo Gleiser. Learn more about his inspiring work bridging science, philosophy, and spirituality at templetonprize.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, at Stanford University, rethinking success as new generations of humans ask who and how they will be as fervently as what they will do. This conversation with education researcher Denise Pope and physician and author Abraham Verghese was part of 10 weeks I spent as a distinguished visitor at the Haas Center for Public Service. We spoke before an audience of students, faculty, and local community members. So let's open this up. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Sam Faina. I'm a senior on campus studying political science. Um, Parents are also from Ethiopia, so I, I, oh. I resonated with that, yeah. that thought you said there. When, uh, right before I asked the questions, uh, I just wanted to note, when I was asked to read the questions for tonight's event, 
I was told by the Haas staff to represent all 7,000 undergrads. <laughs> so I will try to do that, but please bear with me as I go through that process. I, I'm, I'm um, actually going to overrule that. And just, I'm just going to say, would you just represent yourself? Sounds good. Yeah. So just to start off the conversation, uh, collecting all the thoughts that you had, uh, the first question is, what's a time when each of you has failed? Um, you all went to the right schools and got the right jobs after all, or at least one conception of it. Um, so I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Well, I, I think that my life, the real education of my life was all the failures. I mean, mm -hmm. that is really what shaped me. So I began uh, medical school in Ethiopia, actually, and uh, a very nice school run by the British Council for East Africa. And then civil war broke out. And so suddenly in the middle of my third year of medical school, I was adrift. And uh, it was the worst thing that could have ever happened to me, I thought. And my parents had come here a little before that, reading the writing on the wall. And I joined them in New Jersey. And I could not get back into medical school because I, I didn't have an undergraduate degree. In most parts of the world, you go straight from high school to pre-med to medical school. And I began to work as an orderly. And I think it was the hardest part of my life at the time. I thought this was really you know, the pits. Um, and I was working night shift and sharing a car with my parents. And, but I look back now, and if I have any sort of reputation in America, I think it's come from the fact that I got to see what happens to the patient in the 23 hours and 57 minutes that the doctors are not in the room. And I feel a great uh, solidarity with my colleagues in nursing, nursing assistants. And, um, you know, I think that that, that that failure, so to speak, turned out to be the biggest success. And I, I don't want to go on, but I would say that almost everything I learned, and I hope undergraduates really listen to this, in fact, I know Dr. Costanzo and others have a whole project around resilience and failures. Uh, that is really where your education comes. The rest of it is fluff. I'll just say here that every time I get introduced, like I did tonight, which was so gracious and beautiful, but it's like we, are, we have lived in this presentational culture. And every time I cringe a little bit because like, I know the real story. And it's not that all of those credentials don't matter, but the real story, yeah, it's just full of more. It's most of the time for many years, even the things that look like a success eventually often feel like failure so much of the time or just very uncertain. And if I look at my resume now of my 20s, I kind of walked into all these adventures, and it looks so impressive. And I know that every single minute of every single day of every, all of those years, I was constantly second-guessing myself and wondering what I should be doing that would be better. And um, I actually think this is one reason that real friendship across generations is really important. I think it's really a calling for this century because the... The wisdom of young adulthood, I think, is actually an urgency and an impatience, right? And, and this, this longing and this aspiration to see the world whole and make it better. We want that. But there's something so relaxing about living for a while and knowing in your body that life is long and knowing that there will be another side to whatever is happening. And so, I mean, that's really the experience you have of failure. But I will say, 
the wisest people I've interviewed and the most successful, I would say, in human terms, um, are not successful in spite of what's gone wrong for them, but because of how, not just how they have walked through that, but how they integrated it into their wholeness on the other side. Switching to the uh, perspective of an employer or a mentor or a professor, uh, what can uh, each of those uh, roles and people do to encourage alternate ways of thinking about success, more from the extrinsic to the intrinsic uh, uh, mode of um, viewing success? Well, maybe I'll start and say that uh, I actually think that my mentees are teaching me what success means, because mm. I think the millennials uh, they really have a much better sense of what's important. And, you know, sometimes our generation, you know, complains about that, that this is just a job for them, not a calling. But on the other hand, they are much more ready to put their family and their children first in a way that I regret that, uh, you know, I didn't do. And uh, so I've learned from them uh, to be flexible, to be uh, much more concerned about their personal health than I think we were. So I'm not sure that I impart as much to them as they impart to me. But that said, I think a lot of when I do impart things that are not strictly medical in career, it's, it's mostly about just relaxing and making sure that they're enjoying the journey. I have a very simple definition of success, which is uh, any day above ground is a good day, you know? <laughs> so given the alternative, and I see plenty of that, so, um, you know, if you start with that premise, and it's not hard to do in medicine, then really every day is a good day. How can you not bring your best to it? And the last question I have here um, is from a young person who went to a competitive school in Palo Alto um, <laughs> and finds uh, him or herself struggling to question what success looks like. Um, I feel like I have few role models, even the three of you have um, uh, successful careers uh, that were explored in your introductions. And this person is curious to hear your thoughts about um, career, uh, like mentorship building, how to create some of these pipelines, um, and a final kind of direct action to uh, help students expand some of their opportunities. Yeah, we hear this question a lot from kids, and um, there's a couple of different answers. One is that people assume that there's a straight and narrow path that I knew when I was 18 that I was gonna be sitting up here today. And I can tell you, absolutely not. I didn't even think I should be up here with this guy anyway, right? So <laughs> now, so I, I think that idea of a straight and narrow path is, um, is, is really outdated. And as a young person, so part of this is your prefrontal cortex, getting into the medical side of things, is not fully developed. And the prefrontal cortex is what allows you to sort of see and plan ahead. And so in your head, you think you have to have it all figured out, and you think it's very linear. Get the grades, get into college, go to grad school, have a career, get to money. That has been said over and over and over to us. And what, what we're trying to say is you have no idea where your life is going to lead, and so you have to be open to the possibilities. Find lots of different mentors. Take lots of different classes and things that are exciting. Pursue things that, that bring you joy mm -hmm. um, because you're just never going to know 
I, I was supposed to be a journalist, you know, and it, it just didn't happen for a whole bunch of reasons. And I fell into education and loved it. Um, and then I didn't take a, a normal path for a professor. I'm looking at Deborah Stifik in the audience because she kept saying to me, come on, let's do the normal path. And I was like, no, I, I want to do something a little different. Um, and, and, it, and it's definitely paid off, but there's no way I could have foreseen this. No. No. In my case, I got off the treadmill of medicine at some point because I was so moved by the HIV experience during that era when there were no treatments and it was you just were in a, Tennessee I was in Tennessee in a small rural town. area yeah and uh, I really thought that if I didn't do something I would die I would just die from the stress of it and I wanted to do HIV care the rest of my life and I'm, I still am and many people have fallen off the way but I knew I would have to take a break and I decided to go to the Iowa Writers Workshop and uh, you know cashed in my retirement and my 401k and all that stuff and it was considered academic suicide, professional mm -hmm. suicide, mm -hmm. but I felt that I had to do it. And then I was uh, finishing there and ready to take an academic job, and I had some really good opportunities to stay at the University of Iowa, a great school, or uh, University of North Carolina was hired, wanting to hire me. And I suddenly realized I'd never write in those places because I would be so busy trying to crank out NIH grants and all that. And so. I went to Texas Tech El Paso. I could literally throw a stone out of my window and hit uh, someone in Juarez, Mexico. And yet it was the most beautiful place to practice because in that county hospital we saw everything uh, in young people, untreated. It felt very meaningful, but my evenings were mine to write and to develop my voice and um, my weekends were mine. And I eventually got hired to Stanford in a roundabout way largely because of that. And had I come to Stanford in the first place, yeah. just about now I would be losing my tenure and heading to El Paso, Texas, probably. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, I tell students that life is ironic. It's never going to be yeah. the path that you, that you planned. And uh, if you're not open to what your heart's telling you, within reason, I mean, yeah. within reason, then you're, you're probably not going to be as happy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just want to add, because there is research to back this up, that, that we actually spent a year at Challenge Success looking at college outcomes and asking, does it matter where you go to college? And we looked at it in terms of finances. We looked at it in terms of job satisfaction. We looked at it in terms of well-being. And all the research points to, for the most part, it really doesn't matter. Um, if you are a, a person uh, who comes from a very poor background, a person of color, it may matter more in terms of finances than for others, but for the vast majority, um, whether you go to community college or you go to Stanford, uh, in terms of job satisfaction in the future, in terms of well-being, and in terms of, of really finances, um, it's, not, it's not the name. So that, that should bring well, what you... What is it that makes a difference then, if it's, it's not? It's actually the level of engagement you bring to college. And it would be the same in the workplace and the same in, in the hospital. And I think when you say engagement, you're not just talking about whether you get really good grades. No, it's the opposite, right? It's, it's some of your most engaged people get the worst grades because they're out there going deep into what they want to do and they're not following mm -hmm. the rules and the teacher doesn't know what to do with that. No, it's, it's, it's engagement where you are excited and passionate about what you're doing. You're involved in your community. It turns out that's very important. It could be the bowling league or a church community or whatever, but you are... 
you feel a part of that place. You have mentors and you find ways to apply what you learn. So internships or deep research, it's actually to give a shameless plug for the Haas Center, what the Haas Center does for for kids here at Stanford. Yeah, you know, I want to say that something that came up in some of the conversations I've had at the Haas Center in the last couple of weeks is the problematic way we work with the success story, which is often about somebody who comes from a really unlikely background, really the way the narrative goes, an inferior place. I mean, that's assumed. A place without opportunity, who had nothing going for them, right? And then the success is in achieving every, all the ways we, design, we define success, right? And also it's often about leaving that place they came from. And we do have to learn how to see and honor all the forms of successful life which are not measured in a job title. It's really important. I I hear this from, I I work with a lot of students who are trying to figure out when to have kids. And if you leave the workplace to have kids and then I'm just a mom. And this idea that you're just, not, first of all, it's the hardest job you will ever do. It's way harder than any other job I've ever yeah. had is being a mom. And I love it, yeah. but it's really hard. Yeah. And that idea of, I think. And it is literally life-giving. It is literally life-giving. And I think adding a thinking, feeling, empathetic, morally driven person to this world is probably the most important thing you can do. Um, or helping others, if you, I'm not saying everyone has to be a parent, but helping others to live in the way that people should live. And, and that has nothing to do with what you do for a living. Right. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Stanford researcher Denise Pope and physician and author Abraham Verghese. Well, so what I feel this is circling around to is is actually the notion of vocation. And it's our calling as human beings, not just our calling to a profession. And in fact, I think the reality of life is that you have many vocations in the course of a life. And even if you have the job you want, there are times when your parenting or your relationship or your caregiving for a parent is a much more uh, important part of your vocation than the job you're doing, right? And also this idea that to work in order to put food on your table and feed your family is meaningful work. I feel like if we develop a more expansive sense of vocation that is in sync with what we're learning and actually what we desire, that vocation, it will, be, it will be something multifaceted. It will be the work we do, which at times may define us and at times may not. It will be the people we love. It will be the people we serve. It will be our community. Um, I feel like even that could be kind of a mental shift, like taking in placebo as actually a superpower rather than a trick. I love the idea of a calling. I mean, obviously, I, I think that that was how I felt about medicine. It was truly a calling. I couldn't imagine something more romantic than, than that. And sometimes I feel that there's 
you know, there's too many mercenary decisions made to go into medicine, not necessarily because of a calling. But that's rare. Most people do feel a calling. But I must say, I think the millennials are much more willing to truly follow their calling. Um, mm -hmm. I have a son who's a musician in Santa Fe. He's 32 years old. Um, what he really is is a barista. <laughs> I have one of those, too. Yeah. <laughs> but he's a musician, and uh, you know his music's good. Um, but I fear for him. I, you know, I had all mm -hmm. the traditional worries about, and I had a conversation with him, and he and he just stopped me in my tracks by something he said. He said, "Dad, I just want to make enough." Because I would say, "Well, how, you know, how do you, how are you going to hit the big time?" And right. he says, "Dad, I'm not necessarily looking for that. I just want to make enough money, and doing this thing I love to do." I mean, what more could I say about that? So I said, go for it, you know. I hope you can cover your car insurance, but otherwise it's a... <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, the world needs more of that, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and we hear kids who say, I don't have a passion. I'm eight years old, what's my passion? I'm 12 years old. You know, I've got to write it on my college application what my passion is. And, and you just say to them, it will come. You know, and, and it yeah. comes from being open and curious yeah. and taking risks and, and meeting Stepping others. Stepping into uncomfortable places where you may fail. Right. Yeah. But I don't want people to get hung up on this thing called a calling and that you need it when you're eight. No. Because you just, I mean, right, that's, you run the risk. Whatever you then say is it, everybody wants it. Um, it will come. It will come. So if I ask each of you, you know, not what you do, but what is... What is, how do you understand your vocation at this, or your vocations at this moment in time? Like, how would you start to answer that question? This has always been with me, actually, f from my grandfather's story, which is uh, I'm Jewish, and there's a notion called tikkun olam, which means to repair the world. And the rule is that you don't have to fix it, and you don't have to do it alone, but you got to try. And that's how I've seen sort of every part of my life is doing something to try and make the world a better place. And this was the thing that happened to kind of catch me. And I fell into it when I wrote the book. I didn't know the book was going to start me down this path to have this nonprofit and do all this stuff. But it is fulfilling to help people and feel like I'm part of repairing the world. So, I mean, I'm, I'm always, you know, having to pinch myself that I'm really at Stanford. I'm actually sitting here talking with you and people wanting to listen to us, to me anyway. I mean, I know they want to listen to you. I've gotten so many emails about <laughs> Yeah. You know, and I, I, I almost, uh, and I also feel like as a writer, I have the great luxury of having the most beautiful day job in the world. And so no matter what happens to me, I love seeing patients. It's truly a calling and uh, I can do that anywhere in the world. Mm. And uh, it doesn't really matter how much I get paid as long as I, you know, can feed my, myself and my children who are now fine. So in that sense, I think my son was right. Finding this thing that will both be something you love and that will pay your bills. Uh, that, that is really the calling. Mm -hmm. Or as he's doing it, you find the thing you love and you find the thing that pays your bills. And yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Abraham, there's a poem by E.E. E. Cummings that you quoted, do you know what I'm talking about, the heart poem? I carry your heart, uh, yeah. indeed, yeah. I wondered, would you talk about why you care about this so much? I feel like it is, 
it is related to what we've been talking about. Even the way we, we've always used the language of heart as a metaphor for all this other stuff that isn't measurable. Like in our bodies we've known, and now actually science is showing us this interactivity. Um, I don't know. Do you think this fits what we've been talking about? Yeah, I think I think it does. I mean, I remember. I mean, I've always loved that poem. Uh, for those of you who don't know it, it's you know, I carry your heart. In I, my I heart. have it. I was going to ask yeah. you to read it. Yeah. Would you? Yeah. Talk about what you love. I can't about recite it. it if that's what you're going to say. Can you? I can read it. If, um, yeah. You can recite I, it. Too. I don't want to stumble reciting it. <laughs> I printed it out for you. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. You read it? You're going to make me cry. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for beautiful you are my world, my true. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever a sun will always sing is you. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. Lovely. So I, um, I've always loved this poem, and I was asked to address by my boss here at Stanford, who's a cardiologist, couldn't say no, to speak at this big congress of cardiology in San Diego Convention Hall. You know, 10,000 cardiologists floating around, and uh, I was going to give the opening keynote I didn't have slides, I didn't have molecules, I didn't have catheters, I was, you know, and I decided that I was going to make this my theme because they were going to spend five days talking about the heart mm. and not necessarily acknowledging this metaphorical heart. And I, you know, I think there was pin drop silence because everybody was waiting to see when, I, you know, how, how quickly I was going to bomb with this particular theme. <laughs> but I think it, uh, it struck a chord. It mm -hmm. struck a chord, you know, the... The person who comes to see you, as William Carlos Williams said so many years ago, uh, they are not a liver or a heart or a kidney. They are one guy or gal uh, with a unique problem. And his wonderful quote was that the physician on the front line must fall back on his or her own sense of self. That is your instrument. Mm -hmm. I mean, your instrument is not the EKG or the stethoscope. It's your sense of self combined with all the scientific knowledge and the human understanding that you bring. And uh, I just love that poem. And I, my, my boss, I don't think he'll mind my telling this because I published this. He has twin daughters. And they have both tattooed the words, I carry your heart, uh, you know, over their sixth rib on either side. So that it doesn't matter that it's a sixth rib, but it is a sixth rib. <laughs> um, and I was very touched by that, you know. So they're, they're, they're separated now. They live in different cities, but... I carry your heart, you know. There's some place you were talking about, let me look, find this in my notes. You're talking about presence, about your learn, thinking about presence, and you said disease is easier to recognize than the individual with the disease. 
which is related to the to what you just said, and it feels to me like that that can be carried over to all of our, our encounters with each other in all of our spaces, especially in a moment like this. And I think that's very fitting for being convened here by the Haas Center for Public Service. Um, so, you know, what we've kind of circled around to here is our presence to ourselves and how inextricable that is to be meaningful, to be, to be absolutely connected to our presence to others. And that will change us, and that will shape the path. So thank you all for coming. Thank you so much, the two of you, for your wisdom. Have a good evening. <laughs>
is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.